0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting April 30th, 2008, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll enter the fascinating world of plasma, not the blood kind, the physics kind, with Stanford University physicist Roger Blandford. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Roger Blandford is the co-author of the Blandford's znajek Process, the leading explanation for how black holes produce jets of plasma traveling at near light speed. But what's plasma? Well, he'll explain that. He's the director of the Cavley Institute for Particle Astrophysics and Cosmology at Stanford. He's also a professor at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Blandford's research interests range from high-energy astrophysics and cosmology to general relativity, and gravitational lensing. On April 12th, he gave a plenary lecture at the annual meeting of the American Physical Society in St. Louis. Scientific American's J.R. Minkle was at the meeting, and he spoke to Blandford after his talk.
1: I wonder, uh, could you uh, start by telling our listeners uh, what a plasma is? Oh, a plasma is an ionized gas. It's one where the electrons are separated
2: from the nuclei, uh, usually formed at high temperatures, and most of the baryonic matter in the universe is in the form of plasma.
1: Now, what's baryonic matter, for those who don't know? Uh, This is just
2: regular matter like you and I, and we just use that phrase to distinguish it from the mysterious
1: dark matter, which is actually has a higher average density in the universe, as we now know. Is uh, is plasma dangerous? If I stuck my hand into it, what would happen? Well, it depends how tenuous it is, but if it were dense of the
2: sort that uh, you could make in a laboratory, you would be subject to burns and, in many circumstances, radiation uh, exposure. So it's a good thing to
1: do remote experiments on, and as astrophysicists, we can do remote experiments. So where in the universe uh, do we find plasma? Well, if we just go outside uh, off the surface of the Earth, the first place we find it is in the ionosphere.
2: And one of the reasons that we can bounce radio waves off the ionosphere is because there is a plasma there. We go further afield, we find the Earth's magnetosphere, which is the magnetic field that's tied to the north and south poles. That uh, also contains a lot of plasma, the so-called Van Allen belts and so on, and then extending back beyond the Earth through the so-called magneto tail, which is this sort of lamb's tail that uh, extends back beyond the Earth. That's full of plasma. If we go out into the solar wind, which is the gas that uh, emanates from the surface of the sun and blows past the Earth and the other planets, that also is full of plasma. We go out into the interstellar medium. This is the gas between the stars, like the sun. That too is mostly plasma, not all of it, some of it is in the form of neutral gas, but, but a large fraction of it is in the form of plasma. And then if we go outside uh, the um, galaxy itself into the space between the galaxies, the so-called intergalactic space, then again that is mostly plasma. Closer to home, I, I suppose I left out the sun, which of course itself is mostly plasma, because it's high temperature, center of the sun is 15 million degrees, and so that is plenty hot enough to separate the electrons and the protons and to make sure that they move
1: around freely inside the center of the sun. So it sounds like there's a lot of plasma out there. What fraction of the universe is plasma?
2: Well, we don't know for sure, but of the, what I call, baryonic matter, which is 5% of the total mass energy density of the universe, one would guess about 90 or 95% of it is in the form
1: of ionized gas called plasma. So there's plasma coming out of uh, black holes, is that correct? Well, uh, we think there is plasma around black holes, but...
2: the black holes that we can observe directly through their radiant emission are mostly in a configuration where gas swirls around the black hole in the form of an accretion disk. And that accretion disk is almost, will, will, is most of the mass is going to be in an ionized form. And then some of the um, that gas gets expelled from the uh, environment around the black hole While it's still outside the black hole, it gets squirted out in the form of an outflow, a wind like the solar wind, and then much faster collimated outflow called a jet. In fact, there are two jets, one that goes up and one that goes down, and these are associated with the region very close to the black hole, and those jets contain plasmas that are moving at relativistic speeds,
1: that is to say speeds close to that of light. I mean, how hard is it to get something to produce uh, jets moving at uh, at nearly the speed of light? Well, nature doesn't seem to be very challenged in this regard because it makes jets under
2: many different environments. Even protostars, these are young stars that are just forming and making their own planetary disks and so on, they make very powerful outflows called the same sort of jets. They're obviously moving at slower speeds, but they're full of plasma that's flowing out at high speeds. White dwarfs, neutron stars uh black holes big and small they seem able to do this uh this task it really seems to be a very common phenomenon uh nature is able to do it at will uh we have a harder time understanding in detail how it how these jets are formed but i think that we are getting confused on a higher plane now if you allow me to put it that way and a lot of the sort of ideas that were possibilities in the past have now really been excluded, and we do have a a much more sophisticated understanding of some of the general principles, but I think not all of them.
1: So what is it that we've come to understand lately about uh, plasma astrophysics?
2: Oh, about plasma astrophysics, I would say the first thing is uh, we understand um, that magnetic fields are very, very important, in accretion disks and the region around black holes and neutron stars and those magnetic fields are almost certainly integrally important in forming the jets and uh, and the outflows so i would say that's the first thing that we understand and we understand that on the basis of direct observations which have become very much better over the past 5 or 10 years, and also as a result of theoretical investigations, particularly those involving sophisticated numerical uh, computations. And here we're able to do the sort of experiments with a computer, if you like, uh, that were not possible 10 or 15 years ago. Now we can do those experiments and understand how the laws of physics behave in these environments. So that's the first thing we've understood. I think the second thing that's very exciting is understanding how the high-energy particles are accelerated. Uh, nature is able to accelerate particles like protons to energies that are as large as, say, that of a well-hit baseball. And uh, it's been a puzzle for a long while to know how it does that. We know that for Energies of modest to intermediate energy, the culprit or the source of the acceleration, appears to be the shock front that surrounds a supernova expanding supernova blast wave. That is to say, we have a star that um, undergoes a, a massive cosmic explosion, drives a strong shock wave out into the surrounding interstellar medium and the gas around this shock wave and all the magnetic fields associated with it are capable of accelerating uh, particles to very high energies and also incidentally uh, magnifying and amplifying the magnetic field associated with that shock front and giving a lot of X-ray emission and radio emission and so on. And so we've we've understood that, I think... Uh, we have uh, now a much better understanding from an observational perspective, and again, um, theoretical modeling is becoming much more sophisticated, and although there are still lots of puzzles involved and lots of you know, healthy scientific debates, which is what makes this subject very interesting at this time, we, we, there are some things that people are no longer debating, which they would have been doing so um, five or ten years ago. And these accelerated particles, those are what you call cosmic rays? Cosmic rays, historically, the particles that hit the Earth, they were discovered in the early part of the 20th century, and, uh, mostly that's what people think of as cosmic rays, but relativistic particles exist again throughout the universe, and they don't actually have to hit, hit the, the Earth to be a, to, for their effects to be Uh, observed and for them to pose you know interesting
1: astrophysical problems for us to try and solve so it sounds impressive for a particle to have the kinetic energy of a of a fastball uh, or of a, a struck fastball what what does that mean exactly if one of them hit my head would it hurt me uh, no, uh, that's a very interesting physics question. Let me say that we haven't found one yet with the energy of a
2: home run. So I shouldn't boast too much, but my uh, ob- uh, experimental colleagues are looking for a home run, if you like. But it's a, a, blo- a bloop single would, would be about the right the energy you have. Now, it won't, in fact, if it hit you on the head, um, it, what it would do is just go straight through. And one of the reasons is this is the difference between momentum and energy. It has the energy of a, of a, a baseball, but the momentum of a, a snail. So, uh, so that wouldn't be so bad if you stopped it in your head, you wouldn't actually feel it. Uh, but in practice, any cosmic ray wouldn't get as far as your head because it would be stopped. Uh, that energy would be stopped in the upper atmosphere.
1: So the jets that you said were sort of a generic feature uh, coming out of, um, uh, uh, I think you said protoplanetary disks, and as mm-hmm. well as around black holes. Yes. Um, so what's the mystery with those? Uh, are they especially uh, powerful or impressive in some way? Uh, some of them are in in some active galactic nuclei. You
2: have a black hole and an accretion disk, and the majority of the power is associated with these outflowing jets, far more than is associated with the radiant energy that's emitted by the um, accretion disk and the hot gas surrounding it. So that is is a you know, an observational statement and a very interesting one. So these are not sort of small players; these are major. Uh, parts of the energy budget of an accreting black hole, and by extension, uh, they have an important uh, impact on their environment. And uh, the jets associated with with accreting black holes in nuclear galaxies inflate giant uh, lobes of plasma outside the galaxy and these uh, heat the surrounding gas they affect the fuel supply, they stimulate star formation they in fact stimulate galaxy formation so black holes uh, uh, as well as being sort of agencies of doom and destruction and the end of time and allegories of hell and all the rest of it are also bringers of life so they in fact
1: can be very much part of the regener- regenerative part of an ecological cycle if you like for, for the universe so how large are these jets? If they're spawning galaxies, they must be pretty big. Uh, the, the biggest jets are megaparsecs, which means many millions of light years in size. So yes, they go way outside the galaxy. And in your talk, you showed some rather uh, pretty uh, simulations of, of some of these jets. What have they told us about the jets?
2: Well, analyzing the uh, radio, optical, and X-ray, imi- and now gamma-ray images of jets, and, and data from jets, have uh, helped us understand that they are moving with relativistic speed. They probably contain electrons and positrons, uh, at least in their earliest pla- uh, stages, Although that's not clear, that that's all the way along the jet. Um, they uh, live for hundreds of uh, thousands of years, mil- millions of years probably, and they probably fire up many times during the lifetime of a galaxy. They have a major impact on their surroundings. The they can inflate uh, giant bubbles of hot plasma, which will float away from the source galaxy um, in the gravity, you know, in the gravitational field. These Giant bubbles will just float away, uh, and they again can be responsible for heating the gas that that, uh, um, that surrounds the galaxy. And the simulations tell us all that? No, these are observations that have really told us that. And the simulations, some of the simulations and theoretical work has anticipated the observations. Some of it has actually followed the observations. That's the normal process in, in science. Sometimes you get things right ahead of time. Sometimes uh, you um, produce the explanation after you
1: see the, the, the result of the experiment or the observation. So the simulations tell us we know the underlying physics behind the observations.
2: Uh, the simulations are, in some cases, able to rationalize what we see. I think there's still quite a lot that we are not agreed upon in our modeling of these jets and accretion disks and so on. So there's still quite a lot that we, uh, that, that are genuine healthy areas of debate. But I think there's so many other areas where uh, indeed, the, the very existence of massive black holes themselves in the nuclei of galaxies was a contentious matter. As, as recently as 15 years ago, there were people who were still had alternative viewpoints. Um, I think one doesn't hear from them anymore. Now everyone accepts that every uh, galaxy worth the name has a massive black hole in, in its nucleus and when it's secreting that gas forms a disc around it. I think that is no longer uh, debated and so that's just one of many examples of what was uh, originally a theory or a hypothesis becoming an
1: established scientific fact so if i can give you the uh, opportunity for self promotion what has been your biggest contribution to this field oh gosh um i'm not i think i have
2: i've done a lot of things in collaboration with people i think the uh the work that i am uh i think probably probably best known for or and it was a collaboration i did with uh uh, a colleague called Romans Nayak, where we proposed a particular mechanism for extracting using electromagnetic fields the spin energy of a black hole it 's still in some sense a bit of a conjecture, and I would say it 's not uh, reached the status of, of established fact but it 's uh, very it was for Roman and myself at the time, it was fascinating physics. I'm still fascinated by it, and certainly it's something that I very much enjoyed thinking about and working on, but this is quite a long time ago, so I, I would say that's probably the thing that um, I, I'm, I'm most associated with and uh,
1: certainly something that I, I still
2: find very fascinating.
1: Extracting the spin energy of a black hole, that's a mechanism for producing a jet? Yes, in fact, um, I would argue um, that, in fact, this is where the power for the
2: big big relativistic jets that we see actually comes from. It comes from the spinning space-time around the black hole, and we get... um, In fact, it's not... Very well known, but that energy is there for the taking. Up to 29% of the so-called rest mass energy of a, of a spinning black hole is extractable. And uh, um, original conjecture, which is not not as I say yet established fact, but certainly taken much more seriously than it was at the time. Uh, uh, 10 or 15% of the rest mass energy of the black hole, about half of the spin energy is, um, in practice, according to our conjecture, is in fact the power source for these, um, relativistically moving jets.
1: Very cool. Thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, my
0: pleasure. Check out J.R. Minkle's recent article on plasma jets at www.snipurl.com slash 26dun hyphen siam one and to see some nifty plasma sims that blanford used in his talk at the american physical society meeting see jr's blog item at www.snipurl.com slash dv two hyphen siam two Last week I got a sneak preview of a new exhibit at the New York Botanical Garden called Darwin's Garden. It's a look at Darwin's work as a botanist as well as a walking tour of evolutionary science with botanical examples. And there's an extraordinarily beautiful recreation of the garden that Mrs. Darwin kept at their country home. I interviewed Dr. David Cohn, a Darwin expert who's the curator of the exhibit. We'll play that interview on an upcoming podcast. I just wanted to let you know about the exhibit now, which officially opened last week and will run until June 15th. If you're in the New York City area, check it out. The website is www.nybg.newyorkbotanicalgarden.org/darwin. Also, if you have a softball team in the New York City area and would like to schedule a softball game against the mighty Scientific American Big Bangers team, you can do so by writing to Karen Schrock, her email address, kschrock, that's K-S-C-H-R-O-C-K, at SiamMind.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the helicopter traffic reporter for a Denver TV station is named Wilbur Wright. Story two, a genetic study indicates that Homo sapiens almost went extinct about 70,000 years ago. Story three, to save gas, UPS develops routes that consist almost exclusively of right turns. And story four, a new test for enlarged prostate involves placing a microphone down there amongst the private parts. Time's up. Story four is true. One of the symptoms of an enlarged prostate is difficulty urinating because of a compressed urethra. The current way to test for compression is a catheter that measures pressure changes. Nobody wants that, believe me. The strategically placed microphone records the sound while urinating, and the sound frequency correlates with the urethra's narrowing. A Dutch researcher came up with this new idea, and he has applied for a patent. The first tests of the device will begin soon in Rotterdam. Story three is true. UPS uses routes that have very few left turns to save gas, because sitting in the clogged left turn lane burns more gas than keeping moving and making just rights. A UPS press release claims that their more efficient routes saved three million gallons of gas last year. And story two is true. A genetic study does lead to the conclusion that Homo sapiens almost went extinct about 70,000 years ago. The report was published in the American Journal of Human Genetics. Stanford researchers think that our numbers may have gotten as low as about 2,000 individuals, possibly because of drought. All of which means that story one about the the eye-in-the-sky traffic reporter in Denver being named Wilbur Wright is totally bogus because what is true is that the helicopter traffic reporter for Channel 9 in Denver is named Amelia Earhart. She's actually a distant relative of the other Amelia, and being named Amelia Earhart inspired her to take flying lessons. She now keeps travelers moving and, possibly, from getting lost. Dreams,
2: Amelia. Dreams, and false alarm.
0: Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. You can write to us at podcast at Siam.com and check out Siam.com for the latest science news videos and the opportunity to engage in ongoing discussions about all our articles for science talk, the weekly podcast of scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.